12. Long and happy life. Although to my way of thinking the knowledge of the evil deeds of all the criminals around me would considerably minimize the measure of bliss among such intensely mundane things I was led away to the prison proper. This jail, which had been opened only a few months, is a remarkably fine building, and with the various workshops and outhouses and offices covers from seven to eight acres of ground inside the city, the outside, and indeed the whole place, bears every mark of western architecture with a trace here and there of the Chinese artistry, and for carved stone and grey-washed brick might easily be mistaken for a foreign building. It costs some 90,000 taels to build, and has accommodation for more than the 250 prisoners at present confined within its walls. After an hour's inspection, I came to the conclusion that the lot of the prisoners was cast in pleasant places. The food was being prepared at the time three kinds of vegetables, with a liberal quantity of rice. Much better than nine-tenths of the poor brutes lived on before they came to jail. Disworded warders guarded the entrances to the various outbuildings. From twenty to thirty poor human beings were manacled in their cells, condemned to die, knowing not how soon the pleasure of the emperor may permit of them shuffling off this mortal coil. One grey-haired old man was among the number, and to see him stolidly waiting for his doom brought sad thoughts. The long-term prisoners were, of course, as they do in all prisons, weaving cloth, mostly for the use of the military, seem to be the most important industry, there being over a score of Chinese-made weaving machines busily at work. The task set each man is 12 English yards per day, if he does not complete this quantity he is thrashed, if he does more he is remunerated in money. One was amused to see the English-made machine lying covered with dust in a corner, now discarded, but from its pattern all the others had been made in the prison. Tailors rose as one man when we entered their shop, where singer machines were rattling away in the hands of competent men, and opposite were a body of pewter workers. Some of their products turned out with most primitive tools being extremely clever. The authorities had bought a foreign chair, made of iron a sort of miniature garden seat and from this pattern a squad of blacksmiths were turning out facsimiles, which were selling at two dollars apiece. They were well made, but a skilled mechanic not himself a prisoner, was teaching the men. Bamboo blinds were being made in the same room, whilst at the extreme end of another shed were paper dyers and finishers, carrying on a primitive work in the same primitive way that the Chinese did thousands of years ago. It was, however, exceedingly interesting to watch. As we passed along I smelt a strong smell of opium. Yes, it was opium. I sniffed significantly, and looked suspiciously around. The governor saw and heard and smelt, but he said nothing. Opium, then, is not, as is claimed, abolished in you and man. Worse than this, whilst I was the other day calling upon the French doctor at the hospital, the vilest fumes exuded from the room of one of the dressers. It appeared that the doctor could not break his men of the habit, but we remember that the physician of older days was exhorted to heal himself. Just as I was beginning to think I had seen all there was to be seen. I heard a scuffle, and saw a half-score of men surrounding a poor frightened little fellow, to whom I was introduced. He was the little bogus emperor of China, the young pretender, to whom thousands of Yuanman people, at the time of the dual decease in recent Chinese history, did homage, and kotowed, recognizing him as the new emperor. The story, not generally known outside the province, makes good reading. At the time of the death of the emperor and empress dowager, an aboriginal family at the village of Kuangshijou, in the southeast of Yunnan province, 
knowing that a successor to the throne must be found, and having a son of about eight years of age, put this boy up as a pretender to the Chinese throne, and not without considerable success, the news spread that the new emperor was at the above-named village, and the people for miles around flocked in great numbers to do him homage, congratulating themselves that the emperor should have risen from the immediate neighborhood in which they themselves had passed a monotonous existence. For weeks this pretense to the throne was maintained, until a miniature rebellion broke out, to quell which the viceroy of Yuanman dispatched with all speed a strong body of soldiers. Everybody thought that the loss of a few heads and other Chinese trivialities was to end this little flutter of the people, but not so. The whole of the family who had promoted this fictitious claim to the throne father, mother, brothers, sisters were all put to death, most of them in front of the eyes of the poor little fellow who was the victim of their idle pretext. The military returned, reporting that everything was now quiet, and a few days later, guarded by twenty soldiers, came this young pretender, engaged in one of the prison boxes, breaking his heart with grief, and it was he who was now conducted to meet the foreigner. He has been confined within the prison since he arrived at the capital, and the object seems to be to keep him there, training and teaching him until he shall have arrived at an age when he can be taught a trade. The tiny fellow is small for his eight years, and his little wizened face, sallow and delicate, has a plausible tale to tell. He is always fretting and grieving for those whose heads were shown to him after decapitation. However, he is being cared for and it is doubtful whether the authorities or even the emperor himself will mete out punishment to him when he grows older. He did nothing, he knew nothing. At the present time he is going through a class book which teaches him the language to be used in audience with the Son of Heaven he will probably be taken before the emperor when he is old enough. But now he is not living the life of a boy no playmates, no toys, no romps and frolics. He, like Topsy, merely grows in surroundings which only a dark prison life can give him. This was the first time I had even been in prison in China. This remark rather tickled the governor, and on taking my departure he assured me that it was an honor to him, which the Chinese language was too poor to express, that I should have allowed my honorable and dignified person to visit his mean and contemptible abode. He commenced this compliment to me as he was showing me the well-equipped hospital in connection with the prison containing eight separate wards in charge of a Chinese doctor. I smiled in return a smile of deepest gratitude, and waving a fond farewell, left him in a happy mood. The schools one would scarce dream of a university for the province of Yunnan, yet such is the case, in former days and it is true, too. To a great extent today the prominent place given to education in China rendered the village schools an object of more than common interest, where the educated men of the empire received their first intellectual training. Probably in no other country was there such uniformity in the standards of instruction. Every educated man was then a potential schoolmaster. This was certainly true of Yunnan, but all is now changing, as the infusion of the spirit of the phrase China for the Chinese gains forceful meaning among the people. The highest hill within the city precincts has been chosen as the site for a university, which is truly a remarkable building for Western China. One of the students of the late, Dr. Matthias Shantung was the architect a man who came originally to the school as a teacher of mathematics and it cannot be said that the huge oblong building, with a long narrow wing on either side of a central dome, is the acme of beauty from a purely architectural standpoint, of red-faced brick. This university which cost over 200,000 tails to build, is most imposing, 
and possesses conveniences and improvements quite comparable to the ordinary college of the West. For instance, as I passed through the many admirably equipped schoolrooms, well ventilated and airy, I saw an Italian who was laying in the electric light, A.C. the power for which was generated by an immense dynamo at the basement, upon which alone 20,000 tails were spent. Thirty professors have the control of 32 classrooms, teaching among other subjects mathematics, music, languages chiefly English and Japanese, geography, chemistry, astronomy, geology, botany, and so on. The museum, situated in the center of the building, does not contain as many specimens as one would imagine quite easily obtainable, but there are certainly some capital selections of things natural to this part of the empire. The authorities probably thought I was rather a queer foreigner, wanting to see everything there was to see inside the official barriers in the city. Day after day I was making visits to places where foreigners seldom have entered, and I do not doubt that the officials, whilst treating me with the utmost deference and extreme punctiliousness, thought I was a sort of British spy. When I went to the agricultural school, probably the most interesting visit I made, I was met by the Secretary for Foreign Affairs a keen fellow, who spoke English well, and who, having been trained at Shanghai, and therefore understanding the idiosyncrasies of the foreigner's character, was invited to entertain, and this he did, but he was careful that he did not give away much information regarding the progress that the Yuan names, essentially sons of the soil, are making in agriculture, for this school of agriculture is an important adjunct, scholars are taken on an agreement for three years, during which time they are fed and housed at the expense of the school, if they leave during the specified period they are fined heavily, no less than 180 boys, ranging from 16 to 23, are being trained here, with about 120 paid apprentices, three Japanese professors are employed one at a salary of $200 a month, and two others at 300, the latter having charge of the fruit and forest trees and the former of vegetables. In years to come the silk industry of Yunnan will rank among the chief, and the productions will rank among the best of all the 18 provinces. There are no less than 10,000 mulberry trees in the school grounds for feeding the worms, 4,000 catties of leaves are used every day for their food, 500 immense trays of silkworms are constantly at work here. The worms are in the charge of scholars, whose names appear on the various racks under their charge, and the fact that feeding takes place every two hours day and night, is sufficient testimony that the boys go into their work with commendable energy, as I was being escorted around the building, through shed after shed filled with these trays of silkworms, several of the scholars made up a sort of procession, and waited for the eulogy that I freely bestowed, in another building small boys were spinning the silk, and farther down the weavers were busy with their primitive machinery, with which, however, They were turning out silk that could be sold in London at a very big price. The colorings were especially beautiful, and the figuring quite good, although the headmaster of the school told me that he hoped for improvements in that direction, and I looking wise, although knowing little about silk and its manufacture, heartily agreed with the little fat man. There is a department for women also, and contrary to custom, I had a look around here, too. The girls were particularly smart at spinning. Footnotes, footnote AC, soon afterwards a disturbance occurred among the students, and had it not been for the promptitude of the inspector, some of them might have lost their heads, 
the electric light had just been laid in and was working so well that the authorities found it imperative to charge each of the 400 resident students $1 per month for the upkeep. This simple edict was the cause of the riot in a body the boys rolled up their pukais, and marched down to the main entrance, declaring that they were determined to resign if the order was not rescinded. The inspector, however, had had all the doors locked. The frenzied students broke these open, and incidentally thrashed some of the caretakers for interfering in matters which were not considered to be strictly their business. Subsequently the Chancellor of Education visited the college in person, but no heed was paid to his exhortations, and it was only when the dollar charge for lighting was reduced that peace was restored. The Chancellor, as a last word, told them that if they vacated their schoolrooms a fine of about a hundred tails would be imposed upon each man. The occasion was marked by all the foolish ardor one finds among college boys at home, and it seems that, despite the enormous amount of money the college is costing to run, the students are somewhat out of hand. EJD, Second Journey UN Man Fu to Tailai Fu via Fu Chapter XB, Stages to Tailai Fu, Worst Roads Yet Experienced, Stampede Among Ponies, Hybrid Crowd at Enningkyo, Simplicity of Life of Common People. Does China want a foreigner? Straight settlements and China proper compared. China's aspect of her own position. Renaissance of Chinese military power. Europeans not wanted in the empire. Emptiness of the lives of the common people. Author erects a printing machine in inland China. National conceit. Differences in makeup of the Hua Miao and the Han Ren. The Hua Miao and what they are doing. Emancipation of their women. Tribute to Protestant missionaries. Betrothal and marriage in China. Miao women lead a life of shame and misery. Crude ideas among Chinese regarding age of foreigners. Musty man and dusty traveler at Lao Yakuan. Intense cold. Salt trade. Park-like scenery. Pleasant travel. Solitude. From the figures of heights appearing below, one would imagine that between the capital and Tailaifu hard climbing is absent. But during each stage, with the exception of the journey from Asiaidza to Shatyauke, there is considerable fatiguing uphill and downhill work, each evening bringing one to approximately the same level as that from which he started his morning tramp. I went by the following route, length of height stage above sea first day Anningkyo 70 li 6.300 feet second day Lao Yakuan 70 li 6.800 feet third day Lutetium Fengxian 75 li 5.500 feet fourth day Asiaidza 80 li 6.100 feet fifth day Quantun. Xian 60 li 6.300 feet 6th day rest day. 7th day Chusang Fu 70 li 6.150 feet 8th day Lu Ho K 60 li 6.000 feet 9th day Shatyao K 65 li 6.400 feet 10th day Piu Pen 90 li 7.200 feet 11th day Yuan Nan I 65 li 6.800 feet 12th day Hong Lei 80 li 6.000 feet 14th day Jiao Chao 60 li 6.750 feet 15th day Tailaifu 60 li 6.700 feet. A long, winding and physically exhausting road took me from Shatyao K to Yinwa Kwan, the most elevated pass between Yuan Manfo and Tailaifu, and continued over barren mountains, bereft of shelter, and void of vegetation and people, to putting, a rough climb of an hour and a half then took me to the top of the next mountain where roads and ruts followed a high plateau for about 30 li, and with a precipitous descent I entered the plain of Yuan Manai then over and between barren hills, 
passing a small lake and plain with the considerable town of Yuanmanshian can lead to the right. I continued in a narrow valley and over mountains in the same uncultivated condition to Hongbei, situated in a swampy valley. Having crossed this valley, another rough climb brings the traveler to the top of the next pass, Tinkailing. Once the road descends, and leads by a well-cultivated valley to Jiaochao. After an easy thorough delay we reached Xiaquan, a one of the largest commercial cities in the province, lying at the foot of the most magnificent mountain range in Yunnan, and by the side of the most famous lake. A paved road takes one into his destination at Tailifu, where I was welcomed by Drive and Mrs. Clark, of the China Inland Mission, and hospitably entertained for a couple of days. The roads in general from Yuanmanfu to Tailifu were worse than any I have met from Shuangkin onwards, partly owing to the mountainous condition of the country, and partly to neglect of maintenance. Where the road is paved, it is in most places worse than if it had not been paved at all, as neither skill nor common sense seems to have been exercised in the work. It is probably safe to say that there are no ancient roads in Yuanman, in the sense of the constructed highways which have lasted through the centuries for the civilization of the early Yuan names was not equal to such works. As a matter of fact, the condition of the roads is all but intolerable. Many were never made, and are seldom mended one may say that with very few exceptions they are never repaired, except when utterly impassable, and then in the most makeshift manner. My highly strung Rusty received a shock to his nervous system as I led him leisurely from the incline leading into Anangio 6.300 feet through the arched gateway in a pagoda-like entrance, which when new would have been a credit to any city. The stones of the main street were so slippery that I could hardly keep on my legs, frightened by one of their number dragging its empty wooden carrying frame along the ground behind it. A drove of unruly packed ponies lashed and bucked and tossed themselves out of order, and an instant afterwards came helter-skelter towards my ten-inch pathway by the side of the road. All of my men caught the panic and in their mad rush several were knocked down and trampled upon by the torrent of frightened creatures. I thought I was being charged by cavalry, but beyond a good deal of bruising I escaped and hurt. Closer and closer came the hubbub and the din of the town the market was not yet over. As I approached the big street, throngs of blue contomied yokels, quite out of hand, created a nerve-wracking uproar. As they thriftily drove their bargains, I shrugged my shoulders gazed long and earnestly at the motley mob, and putting on a bold front, pushed through in a careless manner. Ponies with salt came in from the other end of the town, and in their waddling the little brutes gave me more knocks. It was an awful crowd Chinese, Menchia, Lolo, and other specimens of hybridism unknown to me. Yet I suppose the majority of them may be called happy. Certainly the simplicity of the life of the common people, their freedom from fastidious tastes which are only a fetter in our own western social life, their absolute independence of furniture in their homes, their few wants and perhaps fewer necessities, when contrasted with the demands of the Englishman, is to them a state of high civilization. Here were farmers, mechanics, shopkeepers, and retired people living a simple, and sophisticated life, all the strength of the world and all its beauties, all true joy, everything that consoles, that feeds hope or throws a ray of light along our dark paths, everything that enables us to discern across our poor lives a splendid goal and a boundless future, comes to us from true simplicity. I do not say that we get all this from the Chinese, but in many ways they can teach us how to live in the spirit of simplicity. They were living from hand to mouth, 
with seemingly no anxieties at all and yet, too, they were living without God, and with very little hope, and here the foreigner reappeared to disturb them, even in Enninkil, only a day from the capital, I was regarded as a being of another species, and was treated with little respect, I was not wanted, no international question has become more hackneyed than, does China want the foreigner? Columns of utter nonsense have from time to time been printed in the English press, purporting to have come from men supposed to know, to the effect that this empire is crying out, waiting with open arms to welcome the European and the American with all his advanced methods of Christendom and civilization. It has by general assent come to be understood that China does want the foreigner, but those who know the Chinese, and who have lived with them, and know their inherent insincerity in all that they do, still wonder on and still ask, does she, to the European in Hong Kong, or any of the China ports, having trustworthy Chinese on his commercial staff without whom few businesses in the Far East can make progress my argument may seem to have no raison d'etre, he will be inclined to blurt out vehemently the absurdity of the idea that the Chinese do not want the foreigner, first, they cannot do without him if China is to come into a line as a great nation among Eastern and Western powers, and then, again, could anyone doubt the sincerity of the desire on the part of the celestial for closer and downright friendly intercourse if he has had nothing more than mere superficial dealings with them? Thus thought the writer at one time in his life. He has had in a large commercial firm some of the best Chinese assistants living, in China or out of it, and has nothing but praise for their assiduous perseverance and remarkable business acumen and integrity. As a businessman, I admire them far and away above any other race of people in the East and Far East. Is there any businessman in the Straits settlements who has not the same opinion of the Straits-born Chinese? But as one who has traveled in China, living among the Chinese and with them, seeing them under all natural conditions, at home in their own country, I say unhesitatingly that at the present time only an infinitesimal percentage of the population of the vast interior entertain genuine respect for the white man, and, in centers where Western influence has done so much to break down the old-time hatred towards us, the real, and meaner attitude of the ordinary Chinese is one not calculated to foster between the Occident and the Orient the brotherhood of man, difficult is it for the foreigner in civilized parts of China and impossible for the great preponderance of the European peoples at home to grasp the fact that in huge tracts of interior China the populace have never seen a foreigner, save for the ubiquitous missionary who takes on more often than not the dress of the native, although the Chinese government recognizes the dangerous situation of the nation vis-a-vis with nations of Europe, and has ratified one treaty after another with us, the nation itself does not, so far as the traveler can see, appreciate the fact that she cannot possibly resist the white man, and hold herself in seclusion as formerly from the western world, China is discovering has discovered officially, although that does not necessarily mean nationally as Japan did so admirably when her progress was most marked, that steam and machinery have made the world too small for any part thereof to separate itself entirely from the broadening current of the world's life, whilst not for a moment failing to admire the aggressive character of Occidentals, and the resultant necessity of thwarting them we see this especially in official circles in Yuan Man Chinese leaders of thought and activity are recognizing that in international relations the final appeal can be only to a superior power, and that power, to be superior, must be thorough, and thorough throughout, so different to what has held good in China for countless ages, that is why China is making sure of her army, 
and why she will have ready in 1912 10 years before the period originally intended no less than 36 divisions, each division formed of 10,000 units. A China is now endeavoring to walk the ground which led Japan to greatness among the nations she takes Japan as her pattern, and thinks that what Japan has done she can do and, officially abandoning her long course of self-sufficient isolation, is plunging into the flood of international progress, determined to acquire all the knowledge she can, and thus win for herself a place among the powers, but I am in you and man, and things move slowly here, all this does not mean that my presence is desired or that fear of me, the foreigner, has ceased, on the contrary, it signifies that I am more greatly to be feared, the European is not wanted in China, no matter how absurd it may seem to the student of international politics, who sits and devours all the newspaper copy good, bad and indifferent which filters through regarding China becoming the Eldorado of the Westerner, he is wanted for no other reason than that of teaching the Chinese to foreignize as much as he can teaching the leaders of the people to strive to modify national life, and to raise public conduct and administration to the best standards of the West, when China is capable of looking after herself, and able to maintain the position she is securing by the aid of the foreigner in her provinces, following her present mode of thought and action, the foreigner may go back again, but it is to be hoped that the evolution of the country will be different, another feature impressed upon me was the emptiness of the lives of the people, Education was rare, and any education they had was confined to the Chinese classics. Neither of the three men I had with me could read or write. The thoughts of these people were circumscribed by the narrow world in which they live, and only a chance traveler such as myself allows them a glimpse of other places. Each man, with rare exception, lives and labors and dies where he is born that is his ambition, and in the midst of a people whose whole outlook of life is so contracted. I find difficulty in believing that progress such as Japan made in her memorable 50-year forward movement will be made by the Chinese of Yuan Man in 200 years. Everything one can see around him here, at this town of Anningkyo, seems to make against it. In my dealings with Chinese in their own country I speak broadly I have found that they know everything. I erected a printing press in Tongshuanfu some months ago a type of the old flat hand press not unlike that first used by Caxton. It was a part of the equipment of the Aikuhasi Tang Love of Country School, and I was invited by the gentry to erect it. Now the thing had not been up an hour before all the old fossils in the place knew all about it. Printing to them was easy a child could do it. It is always, Orente, Orente, I know, I know. These men, dressed in their best, stood with arms behind them, and smiled stupidly as I labored with my coat off fixing their primitive machinery, yet they did not know. And now, within a few months, not a sheet has been printed, and the whole plant is going to rack and ruin. This is the difference between the Chinese and the tribespeople of Yuan Man. Here we see the god of the missionary again, quite apart from any religious basis. The tribesman comes and lays himself at the feet of the missionary, and says at once, I do not know, tell me, and I will follow you. I want to learn. That is why it is that the Chinese stand open-eyed and open-mouthed when they see the Miao making strides altogether impossible to themselves, in proportion to their standard of civilization, and this position of things will not be altered, unless they cease to deceive themselves. I have seen a Miao boy of nine who never in his life had seen a Chinese character, who did not know that school existed and, whose only tutoring depended on the week's visit of the missionary twice a year, 
I have seen this youngster read off a sheet of Chinese characters no Chinese boy of his age in the whole city would succeed in. I have not been brought into contact with any other tribe as I have with the Hua Miao. But if the progress this once despised people are making is maintained, the Yuan names will very soon be left behind in the matter of practical scholarship. These Miao live the simplest of simple lives, but they wish to become better to live purer lives, to become civilized, to be uplifted, and therefore they are most humble, most approachable, and are slowly evolving into a happy position of proud independence. Education among the Hua Miao is not lost, among the Chinese much of the labor put forward in endeavors to educate them is lost, or seems to bear no immediate fruit. The Miao are living by confidence and hope that turns towards the future, the Yuan names are content with their confidence in the past. The Miao, however, were not like this always but a few years ago they were not heard of outside China. The coming emancipation of their women, demands some attention. The few Europeans who have lived among the multitudes in central China would not associate beds of roses with the lives of the women anywhere. The daughter is seldom happy, and unless the wife present her husband with sons, who will perpetuate the father's name and burn incense at his tablet after his death, her life is more often than not made absolutely unbearable a fact more than any other one thing responsible for the numerous suicides. She is the drudge, the slave of the man. And the popular belief is that all the women of the Middle Kingdom are essentially Chinese, but little is heard of the tribes people more numerous probably than in any other given area in all the world whose womankind are as far removed from the Chinese in language, habits and customs as English ladies of today are removed from Grecians. A decade or so ago no one heard of the Mia women, they were the lowest of the low. Having no status, they were far worse off than their Chinese sisters, who no matter what they had to endure after marriage, were certainly safeguarded by law and etiquette allowing them to enter the married state with respectability, but no social laws, no social ties protect the Mia women. Until a few years ago their club was a common brothel, too horrible to describe in the English language. As soon as a girl gave birth to her first child she came down on the father to keep her. In many cases, it is only fair to say, they live together faithfully as man and wife. Although such cases were not by any means in the majority, the poor creatures herded together in their unspeakable vice and infamy, with no shame or common modesty, fighting for the wherewithal to live, and only by chance living regularly with one man, and then only just so long as he wished. Little girls of ten and over regularly at 